Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a white horse open sleigh. Jingle bells. Rumpole and the New Year's Resolutions by John Mortimer. Adapted by Richard Stoneman. Starring Julian Reintut as Horace Rumpole. Henry! Henry! Did you leave me that brief? Oh. No one in the clerk's room. Again? Ah, this so-called Christmas break. You can't bear the fact that the courts have to shut down for such a long time. And poor hacks like me have to wait an age to resume their professional duties. Is anybody here? No. And yet, just ten days ago, Equity Court was full of people. Young people. Children, in fact. The idea had been Claude Erskine Brown's, whose twins, Tristan und Isolde, were no more than six months old, and yet deserving, according to their father, of a Christmas party. And I, of course, had my own son, Nicholas, who would have preferred to stay at home watching Animal Magic or uh, Dr. What's-His-Name. She who must be obeyed insisted, however, that Nicholas should come to the kiddies' party. After much planning for the event, Claude announced his final triumph at a chambers meeting. I've had a bit of luck. I've managed to get Father Christmas. Oh, congratulations, Erskine Brown. What did you do? Travel to Reindeer Land and bring him back on the overnight ferry? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Rumpole. He's a fellow who advertises in the Islington Gazette. Look at this. Add a genuine ho-ho-ho to your Christmas party. A convincing Santa Claus is now accepting bookings. The phone number's in Palmer's Green. I spoke to the man, negotiated a fee, and I've managed to secure his services. With a genuine Santa Claus coming all the way from North London, more candidates signed themselves up for the party. Judge Bullingham, a.k.a. the Mad Bull, called me into his room down the Bailey and asked if he could invite a couple of grandchildren. This chamber's party, Rumpole. I wonder if invitations might be extended to my grandchildren, Angus and Ermintrude. Eh? Eh? Splendid! Good man! Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one-horse open sleigh. The day of the kiddies' party finally arrived. Darkness came early. As the gas lamps were being lit around the temple, there was a ring at the door of number four equity court. Our clerk, Henry, opened it to the ho-ho-ho of a figure who looked so like everyone's idea of Santa Claus that, perhaps after a glass or three of Chateau Thames embankment, I might have believed the legend had come to life. He had exactly the right roundness of nose. His eye was bright and his flowing beard snowy white. He carried a voluminous bag, no doubt full of presents and other surprises. After another burst of ho-ho-ho, he asked Henry if he might borrow the clerk's room to uh, prepare a few surprises. At the time, it didn't occur to me to wonder why Santa would know about the clerk's rooms. The party assembled in the big room of our head of chambers, Soapy Sam Ballard, and there Father Christmas put on an excellent show. Oh, what fun it is to ride on a one-horse Just before I set off to Casa Rumpo on the Piccadilly line, I remembered a brief for a case that was coming up down the Bailey as soon as the new year commenced. 
The details are unimportant, something involving two or three members of the Timson clan, some stolen motor vehicles, and a tiny bit of actual bodily harm thrown in for good measure. Anyway, whatever the nature of the charges, I was sufficiently sober to know that I'd have to study a number of witness statements before the trial commenced, even if the witnesses then failed to turn up in court, as was often the way with R.V. Timson's. And so I wended my way back to Chambers, located the relevant papers, and noticed how inviting my old couch suddenly appeared. I decided forty winks were in order, lay down, and shut my eyes. It could have been five minutes later, or possibly an hour, but whenever it was, I was woken by the sound of a key turning in the front door of Four Equity Court. Sitting up, I heard footsteps in the passageway. I waited for a minute, then crept out into the darkness and made for the clerk's room, from which odd noises had started emerging. The lights were off, but a lit torch was sitting on Henry's desk. I could just make out the bulky figure of Santa Claus as he attempted to open a drawer, presumably with the intention of filching the contents. I turned on the overhead lamp, illuminating the rotund red figure in all his glory. Seeing me, he immediately plunged his right hand into his pocket. I have to confess, I was alarmed. Was he reaching for a blade or even a shooter? It was obvious the fake Father Christmas was a blagger. Was he armed and dangerous? I decided the best strategy to protect myself was to keep him talking and get him on my side. Now then, old chap, no need to do anything silly. I have, in fact, telephoned the police. They'll be with us presently. In the meantime, why don't we sit down and wait? What do you say to that? To my surprise and relief, Santa took a seat, staring at me all the time with his right hand firmly lodged in his pocket. After a while, I found the silence a little oppressive, so decided to engage my companion in a friendly conversation. I expect you'd rather enjoy this time of year. Personally, I always find it a little disappointing. Christmas Day itself is also very predictable, don't you find? My wife, Hilda, always gives me a tie. It takes just a minute to unwrap and I'll almost certainly never wear it. I give Hilda a bottle of lavender water, which she lays down rather than puts to immediate use. I waited for Santa to give his side of the story, but the old man remained silent. And so I tried some poetry, in the hope that might amuse him. Ring out, wild bells, to the wild sky. The flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out, wild bells, and let him die. At which point I realised that Father Christmas was crying. Tears were dripping down his rosy cheeks and disappearing into his snowy white beard. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to depress you. I, it's actually a very uplifting bit of verse by Alfred Lord Tennyson. It goes on. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring happy bells across the snow. Thankfully, Santa Claus was now drying his tears with the red bobble hat he'd removed from his head. My father was a vicar, so he was always busy at this time of year. Much like yourself, I imagine. 
I remember when I was very young, my father took me to see Mother Goose at the Empire Theatre in Croydon. It was rather embarrassing when he joined in loudly during the food song. <laughs> I liked pickled onions, I liked pickled lily. Pickled cabbage is all right with a bit of cold meat on a Sunday night. I can go tomatoes. But what I do prefer is a little bit of cucumber, 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 little bit of cucumber. I thought that might amuse Santa, but he continued to stare at me without comment. Do you have happy memories from your own childhood? He looked at me for a moment longer, then slowly pulled away his beard. When I was a kid, all I did at Christmas was visit my dad in prison. One year Brixton, next Wandsworth, Dartmoor, three years in a row. And that was quite a journey from Stepney. Yes. And my mum passed away, and my auntie Enid didn't fancy going anywhere near a prison. Mm -hmm. Not with a reputation to preserve. So that was the last I saw of my dad. Oh. He hung himself in Durham. Boxing Day, 1927. I know you, don't I? Well, let's just sit here and wait for the old bill to arrive. I was lying. I haven't called the police. If you want, you're, you're free to go. I don't think I can stop you. Father Christmas thought about that for a moment, then slowly took his hand from his pocket. To my relief, there was no sharpened blade, no revolver, not even a knuckle duster. I saw that he'd removed his white glove and noticed that two of his fingers were missing. Of course. I remembered then where I'd met this man before, and his name. Eric Streeter. Was it Bow Street? We spoke there briefly, but what was it about? Oh, yes, you were with your son, my client, yes. A young boy, what was his name? I know we've got a not guilty, but for the life of me. Cyril. Yes! My boy's name Cyril. Yes. You was very kind to him. Uh. If we hadn't been for that not guilty... I dread to think where he might be now. Well, following me, in and out of the nick, most probably. I should have used you myself, Mr. Rumpole, but I always pleaded guilty, so... What was the point? But I can see you keep looking at my hand. It was the Enfield Post Office job, 15 years ago. Bit of an explosion near the safe, which kind of fell open, and I happened to take the contents... I lost a couple of fingers because I used too much jelly. Cyril wouldn't have made that mistake. He's a clever boy. But he still got nicked again at some point. So I'm very glad you got him off. When I saw you today, I remembered how grateful I'd been at the time. My son told me he wasn't like the other briefs I'd always dealt with. They treated me like dirt. But I think you really cared about my son... And he's doing okay now. He drives a bus. Number 73. I said I was glad to hear it. And then Eric reached into his bag of goodies and pulled out a wadge of cheques and cash. He placed them on top of Henry's desk. I took all this when I first arrived here, but I brought it back, Mr Rumpole. Seeing you and all them kiddies, it made me realise what I was doing... It's just wrong. 
So the spirit of Christmas overcame you. When you decided to bring back the cheques and petty cash, you were moved by feelings of goodwill to all men, including barristers. Eric thought about that, then nodded his head. He picked up a folded slip of paper on the top of the pile he'd just returned. It was a cheque made out to me. My fee for David Timpson's case. Thank you. Happy Christmas, Mr. Streeter. I awaited his response, and Julie got it. Ho, 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 Mr. Rumpole. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now, go to sleep, Nicholas. It's very late, and you should have departed for the land of Nod a long time ago. Sweet dreams. Good boy. See you in the morning. I know I'll be told off when she who must be obeyed returns home in the wee small hours. She'll want to know why I left Bollard's party so early. And without her... Hmm. At this time of year, there are only so many occasions on which one can summon up the energy to spend a whole evening smiling at strangers. I'd rather celebrate by myself with a good bottle of claret or a bottle of Chateau Thames Embankment. My son, Nicholas, seemed pleased to see me home so early. I don't think he likes the babysitter, Miss What's-Her-Name, the rather stout young spinster from 27A, Froxbury Mansions. A perfectly respectable woman, but one who smells of talcum powder and tobacco. Apparently, Nicholas told her this was his best Christmas ever. Why? Because he received all the presents he asked Santa Claus to bring. Seeing his excited, innocent face on Christmas Day reminded me of a young chap I met two years ago. The son of a client. I'd been engaged down the Bailey in a rather jolly case of demanding money with menaces, more commonly known as blackmail. My client, perched in the dock, was a certain Maureen O'Keefe, who described herself as a model, although the days when she strutted, slim as a rail, down any catwalk must have been distant. She had a figure best described as comfortable. Blonde hair that was darker at the roots, bitten fingernails, and a smile which, given her perilous circumstances, could be described as brave. The case against her was that she had acquired sums of money from Mr. X, a businessman from Beckenham, by threatening to tell Mrs. X that their friendly encounters took place between the sheets. The facts were, as you see, routine. What was unusual was that Maureen's twelve-year-old son, Edmund, a solemn child wearing spectacles and a school blazer, was seated on a bench outside court number two, reading a paperback called Sensational Trials. Edmund, it seems, was short of a minder and took an interest in crime. Mr. X. I stood up to cross-examine Maureen's alleged victim, a thin-faced, anxious-looking individual with a bald patch and a habit of dabbing a slightly sweaty top lip with a folded handkerchief. How long had your love affair with Maureen O'Keefe lasted? He told me they'd known each other for four years, at which point the voice of Mr Justice Gwent Evans blew down like a cold wind from the bench. 
You could scarcely call it a love affair. More a business arrangement. Whatever you call it, how much money did you give her over that period? He's already told us, Mr. Rumpole. Just under £200. Just under £200. So that's less than £50 a year. Hardly enough to set her up with a yacht and an E-type Jaguar. The witness claimed it was still more than he could afford. But I suggested it was no more than any man might give as presents to his mistress. Quent Evans queried my use of the word presents, but Mr. X agreed that the cash could have been construed as gifts, perhaps even the type of gifts that any man might give to his girlfriend. He acknowledged that he'd been foolish to give those gifts as cheques, since his wife then noticed them on his bank statements and challenged him for an explanation. When she realised he was lying, his wife, Mrs. X, suggested that he must have been blackmailed and should go to the police. Mr. X himself had not wanted to bring the case to court. With Gwent Evans staring angrily at me throughout my cross-examination, I got Mr. X to admit that my client never said anything that a mistress might not say to her lover, that she accepted less than fifty pounds per annum for always being ready and available whenever he happened to ring her up on the telephone, and that she probably never had blackmail in her mind at any stage of their relationship. I folded my gown about me and sat down. And Mr. Justice Gwent Evans gave me a stony look, as though I should be immediately placed beside my client in the dock. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Rumpole. Therefore, Christian men, be sure, wealth or rank possessing, ye who now will bless the poor. Shall Later, when the jury had been sent out to consider their verdict, my client, Maureen O'Keefe, told me that her son Edmund wanted to be just like me. Apparently, he had ambitions to be an old Bailey hack. She asked me to look after the boy and fetch him a hot drink. So I took him up to the old Bailey canteen, bought him a sweet tea and chocolate biscuits. Mum says you did brilliantly for her in court, Mr. Rumpole. I bet you could have got that Dr. Crippen off if you'd been his brief. You know Dr. Crippen, the one who chalked up his wife and buried her in a cellar. Yes, I, I know who Dr. Crippen is, but he was a little before my time. The question is, how do you know about Dr. Crippen? He has a whole chapter in my book of sensational trials. Ah. I've read it three times, and that's my favourite case. Christmas is coming, Edmund. What are you hoping for? A pterodactyl. Really? An extinct flying reptile of the Jurassic period. They make them with batteries, so they move about. I see. Very realistic. I know that's what Mum's going to get me for Christmas. I was by no means certain that his mum would be at liberty to go shopping. But I didn't tell Edmund that. Ten minutes later, we were called back into court. The jury found Maureen O'Keefe not guilty. And that was the verdict of them all. Maureen gave me a kiss. Edmund said I was brilliant. You're brilliant, Mr. Rumpole. And they walked off together into the early sunset. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. My diary was sadly empty, and my mantelpiece held very few briefs indeed. I was even stumped by the crossword puzzle when there was a knock at my door, and Henry, our clerk, put his head round and told me I had a visitor. Someone in trouble, I asked, hopefully. But Henry merely brought in young Edmund O'Keefe. 
He made himself comfortable in my client's armchair. Thank you very much, Mr. Rumpole. And thanked me for looking after him while his mum was out doing her Christmas shopping. I wasn't quite sure why he thought I was willing to babysit, and he said it was entirely his mum's idea. Apparently, she thought I was a trustworthy gentleman of good character, and she wanted me to take him to meet her in three quarters of an hour at Oxford Circus Station. With nothing better to do, I allowed the boy to stay in the armchair as I took up my pen and tried to complete the crossword, hoping it looked as though I was working very hard. Would you like a mint, Mr. Rumpole? Edmund offered me a curiously strong mint, which I accepted, and then told me his mum had said during her trial I'd been really rude to the old judge. Was that a good idea? Well, you see, Edmund, it's like this: if the judge is obviously on your side. You flatter him, but if the judge is a real prosecution-minded so-and-so who's dead set on putting your client in choky, you taunt him, hmm? irritate him, get him to behave so the jury takes against him and your client gets off. Ah, that's how you got my mum off the charge of blackmail, Mr. Rumpole.、Mm, not altogether. I got her off by my brilliant cross-examination of Mr. X. After that, the jury couldn't be sure of anything. There was a silence, during which Edmund absorbed this wisdom and gave me another mint. Before we knew it, he only had ten minutes to be at Oxford Circus to meet his mother. When we got to Oxford Circus, it was, of course, heaving, and we saw neither hide nor hair of Maureen O'Keefe. Do you think she's forgotten me, Mr. Rumpole? Oh, Edmund, I'm sure she hasn't forgotten you. She'll be here in a minute. Let's just wait, and she's bound to see us. Edmund was beginning, I felt. To fear that his mother was never coming and had run out on him, and the same thought was occurring to me. Had Maureen upped sticks and returned to Ireland? Had she been arrested for some other offence and detained without bail? Had she planned to leave her offspring with me, where he would be sure of a good home and a training in the finer points of the criminal law? And then Claude Erskine Brown. The opera-loving wine buff and hopeless advocate from our chambers arose from the murky depths. Ah, now, who's this young fellow? A godson, a nephew? He is neither Erskine Brown. Well, who is he then? Merely a friend. A friend? What sort of friend? The sort that knows a bit about murder, which is more than can be said of you. Before I could explain to Edmund that Erskine Brown had never defended anyone on a charge of murder alone and without a leader, a sudden thought struck Edmund and cheered him up considerably. He gave a loud cry. I know what's happened to my mum. She must have gone off to buy the pterodactyl. He vanished into the milling, moving surge of shoppers and was carried away, out of my sight, like a toy boat disappearing on a choppy sea. Now I feared that Maureen hadn't ditched him, and that I would eventually have to explain to a weeping mother that I had lost her child in Oxford Street. I set off, no doubt foolishly, in hot pursuit. Bye, bye then, Rumpole. Happy Christmas. It was a nightmare. I was being pushed and shoved, battling against bodies carrying shopping bags and huge parcels, or pushing baskets on wheels. I called out for Edmund once or twice. But it was like shouting into a hurricane. And then I saw him. He was walking fast, trying to keep up with a man in a dark suit who had a protective arm around his shoulder. I immediately gave chase. 
In my imagination, there was something very sinister about the dark-suited figure. I panted, broke into a sort of shambling trot. And then I saw them turn away from the crowds, off Oxford Street and up Rathbone Place into northern Soho. They were fifty yards ahead of me, going past the lit restaurants in Charlotte Street. Then they went into Fitzroy Street, and the lights changed. I was prevented from crossing by a swerving motorbike and hooting taxis, but I saw them in the doorway of a pale house with peeling stucco. The sinister man put a finger to the bell, and before I had crossed the road, I saw the door open, and he and Edmund had vanished inside. When I got to the door, it was locked again. There was a vertical line of bell-pushers with names like Trixie, Yo-Yo, Georgie, and Lelique. There was no Maureen. I pressed Yo-Yo, and an old, tired voice said, Come on up, dear. The door clicked and let me in. I went up a dirty stairway and smelled face powder, disinfectant, and exotic food. Then I heard the voice of a young boy. Thank you very, very much. It's exactly what I wanted. I opened the door, which separated me from the cry of delight. I was in a room with a gas fire, a candlewick bedspread, the smell of cheap scent, and a small, lit-up Christmas tree. Maureen O'Keefe and Mr. X were kneeling on each side of Edmund like a picture of the perfect Christmas family. On the floor, squawking and flashing... <laughs> was the pterodactyl Mr. X had no doubt given Edmund early because he wouldn't be able to get away to visit him on Christmas Day. It was then I realised that I hadn't forced admissions out of Mr. X with the brilliance of my cross-examination at the trial. Mr. X had simply given his case away for Christmas. Ah, oh, humbug. Mm. Ah. Time for bed. After perhaps just one more glass of Shadow Fleet Street or Shadow Thames Embankment, whichever comes to hand. Aspirin, Hilda. When will these festivities ever end? When will crimes be committed again? When will the courtrooms be filled once more with the sounds of argument? Oh, not yet. Not today. I can remain in bed for a little while longer. And I'm very happy to say I won't be visiting any theatres this year. Oh, no pantomimes for me. Perhaps when Nicholas is a little older, we'll take in a Jack and the Beanstalk or a Cinderella. But not just yet. Oh. Not just yet. Oh. Last Christmas I saw Aladdin with Soapy Sam Ballard's nephew and niece. How on earth did I allow myself to be talked into that little outing, you're probably asking? Well... She who must be obeyed thought I should curry favour with our head of chambers. 
and who am I to argue with she who must? When I complained to the Portia of our chambers, Phyllida Trant, as she then was, about my imminent expedition to the Golders Green Hippodrome, she failed to understand my reluctance to go, and reminded me how much I adored the traditional British pantomime. She was right, of course, and for a happy moment I imagined Phyllida as principal boy, her shapely legs encased in black stockings, her neat little wig slightly askew, slapping her thigh and calling out in bell-like tones, Cheer up, Rumpole, Portia's not far away. Star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Bobby and Belinda Ballard were cheerful, reasonably polite young children, who seemed anxious to disassociate themselves as far as possible from the old fart who was escorting them. At every available opportunity they would touch me for cash and then scamper off to buy ice cream, chocolates, sandwiches or Coca-Cola. I was left in reasonable peace to enjoy the performance. I must go home and leave this cave. My uncle's life I'll try to save. But the princess, I can't forget. And enjoy She's it, I did. Aladdin was a personable young woman with an upturned nose, a voice which could have been used to wake up patients coming round from their anaesthesia, and memorable thighs. I'll have to rub my magic lamp. But my arm's so tired. I Widow Twanky, played by a certain Jim Diamond, was all a dame should be. A nimble little cockney, fitted up with a sizable false bosom, a flaming red wig, sweeping eyelashes and scarlet lips. Never have I heard the immortal line, Where's that naughty boy Aladdin got to? better delivered. I joined in loudly when the widow and Aladdin conducted us in the singing of Please Don't Pinch My Tomatoes. It was, in fact and in fairness, all a traditional pantomime should be. And yet I had a vague feeling that something was wrong, that an element was missing. After so much excitement, I felt in need of a stiff brandy and soda. But the eatery, a Wimpy's Hamburger Parlour, which the children had selected for their evening's post-theatre dining, was unlicensed. Once they'd been served with their burgers and milkshakes, I made my excuses, said I'd be back in a moment, and slipped into a nearby pub opposite the stage door of the Hippodrome. As the life-giving draught was being poured, I found myself standing next to Washi and Uncle Abanaza, now out of costume, who were discussing Jim the Dame. Washy had thought him very unfriendly tonight, and said he'd locked himself in his dressing room before the show, and was now refusing to join them for a much-needed drink. Abanaza wondered if he had had a bust-up with Molly, whoever Molly was, but Washy insisted that Jim and Molly never so much as exchanged a crossword. Abanaza thought that might change if Molly found out what Jim had been getting up to with Aladdin twice a day and three times on a Saturday. My, how they laughed. As I asked the girl behind the bar to refill my glass, in which the tide had sunk to a dangerous low, I heard them discussing the widow Twanky's synthetic bosom. Abanaza had previously complained about the polystyrene breast being far too hard and bruising his chest when they danced together. But tonight he'd found them soft and yielding, almost like the real thing. Washi put that down to wishful thinking, or soggy polystyrene. I gulped my brandy and legged it back to the wimpy. 
In the dark passage outside the stage door, I saw a small, nimble figure, Jim Diamond, who, for some reason, hadn't wanted to join the boys in the bar. I wondered at the time why he was hurrying into the Hippodrome when the show was well and truly over. After I'd returned Bobby and Belinda Bollard to the care of their Uncle Sam, I sat on the tube on my way back to Gloucester Road and read the programme. Jim Diamond, it seemed, had started his life in industry before taking up show business. He had a busy career in clubs and turned down appearances on television because he only enjoyed performing live in front of an audience he could see. His photograph, without the exaggerated female makeup, showed a pale, thin-nosed, disagreeable little man with a lip curled of either in scorn or triumph. Stripped of his makeup, there was something about this comic's unsmiling face which brought back memories of another meeting in totally different circumstances. It was not unusual at this time of year to find an old familiar face in a new and unexpected place. The memory I couldn't quite grasp preyed on my mind, even after I was tucked up in bed. It's driving me quite potty, Hilda. Where on earth have I seen him before? Hilda? Hilda. I switched out the light. Then uh, saw the comic's face again, quite clearly, but in a different setting. Not diamond. Sparkler? No. Sparks. Widow Twanky had been played by Harry Sparks, a man who'd trained as a professional entertainer, if my memory was correct, not in clubs, but in Her Majesty's prisons. It was, it seemed, an interesting career change, but I thought no more of it at the time, and, once satisfied with my identification, I, too, fell asleep. Star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. Now, now, the boy couldn't have done it, Mr. Rumpel. Yeah. Not a complicated job like that. Really? In chambers, I was listening to Uncle Fred, the de facto head of the Timson clan. It seemed he had a low opinion of the criminal abilities of his nephew, Dennis. The only way he knows to get in at a safe is to take it out of the ward and try and drive off with it. Yes. That's what he did in that pub in Barkingside. What he found in the safe barely covered the petrol. All right. Young Dennis couldn't have got into the jewellers in Acton. No one in our family could have done that. Nah, nah. The Acton jeweller's job had been highly complicated and expertly carried out, and had yielded for its perpetrators hundreds of pounds. Peanuts Malloy was arrested as one of the lookouts after falling and twisting an ankle when chased by a night watchman during the getaway. He said he didn't know any of the skilled operators who had engaged him, apart from Dennis Timpson, who, he alleged, was in general charge of the operation. Dennis alone, he said, had silenced the burglar alarm and deftly penetrated the lock on the safe with an oxyacetylene blowtorch. It has to be remembered, though, that the clan Malloy has been sworn enemies of the Timpson family from time immemorial. Peanut's story sounded implausible, and seemed even more so when I met Dennis Timpson in a Brixton prison interview room. 
A puzzled twenty-five-year-old with a shaven head and a poor attempt at a moustache, Dennis seemed more upset by his uncle Fred's low opinion of him than the danger of a conviction and subsequent prolonged absence from the family. Dennis's case was to come up for committal at the South London Magistrates' Court before Skimpy Simpson, whose lack of success at the bar had driven him to a job as a stipendiary beak. His nickname had been earned by the fact that he had not, within living memory, been known to splash out on a round of drinks at Pomeroy's wine bar. As I started to prepare the case, I made a note of the date of the Acton Jewellers' break-in. As soon as I had done so, I consulted my diary. It was as I had thought. While some virtuosos had been at work on the Acton safe, I had been enjoying Aladdin in the company of Bobby and Belinda Ballard. Detective Inspector Grimble, would you agree that whoever blew the safe in the Acton Jewellers did an extraordinarily skilful job? Mr. Rumpole, I mean to congratulate your client on his professional skill. God moves in mysterious ways. And it wasn't Skimpy Simpson's fault that he was born with thin lips and a voice which sounded like the rusty hinge of a rusty gate swinging in the wind. I decided to ignore him and concentrate on a friendly chat with Detective Inspector Grimble, a large, comfortable, ginger-haired officer. I mean, Detective Inspector Grimble, that the thieves were well informed. They knew there would be a substantial amount of jewellery and cash in the safe. They did indeed. And was there not a complex burglar alarm system? You couldn't put it out of action simply by cutting the wires, could you? No, you could not. So putting the burglar alarm out of action would have required special skills. That is correct. Detective Inspector Grimble also confirmed that putting the alarm out of action stopped a clock in the office. So we knew that occurred at 8.45. And at 9.20, young Malloy was caught as he fell while running to a getaway car. So the heavy safe was burned open in a little over half an hour. I fail to see the relevance of this, Mr Rumpel. I'm sure the officer does. That shows a very high degree of technical skill, doesn't it, Detective Inspector? Exercised by a highly experienced Peterman. Who is this Mr Peterman? You haven't heard of him before? Not Mr Peterman, sir. An expert at blowing safes is known in the trade as a Peterman. So... Detective Inspector Grimble, we are agreed that this was a highly expert piece of work. And yet Dennis Timpson's record shows convictions merely for shoplifting, bag snatching, and stealing a radio from an unlocked car. And in all of those simple enterprises, he managed to get caught. Your client's criminal record. You're allowing that to go into the evidence, are you, Mr Rumpel? Certainly, sir. Because there is absolutely no indication that he was capable of blowing a safe in record time or silencing a complicated burglar alarm. Mr. Rampole, where is all this leading? Back a good many years, sir, to the Shoreditch Building Society job in Carshalton, when a Mr. Harry Sparks blew a safe so quietly that even the dogs slept through it. Detective Inspector Grimble was an investigating officer, and I'm sure he can confirm that Sparks got five years. Detective Inspector Grimble was happy to confirm that, and Skimpy was overjoyed to commit Dennis Timpson, a minor villain who would have had difficulty changing a fuse, let alone blowing a safe, for trial at the Central Criminal Court. 
Funny you mentioned Harry Sparks. You know, the same thought occurred to me. An expert like him could have done that job in no time. Detective Inspector Grimble and I were washing away the memory of our appearance before Skimpy with two pints of nourishing stout in the pub opposite the Beak's Court. You know Harry took up a new career. I needn't have asked the question. Detective Inspector Grimble had an encyclopedic knowledge of the criminal stars. Oh, yeah. He's a comic now called Jim Diamond. Got a concert party together in the Nick and it gave him a taste for show business, apparently. I did hear that he made a comeback for the Acton job. Actually, all I'd heard was a throwaway line from Uncle Fred Timpson, but it was a thought worth examining. I heard the same. So, we did a bit of checking. Sparks, a.k.a. Jim Diamond, had a cast-iron alibi. At the time when the acting job was done, he was performing in a pantomime. On stage, nearly all evening, it seems, playing the dame in Aladdin at the Golders Green Hippodrome. Yes... But it might just be worth your while to go into that alibi a little more thoroughly. I'd suggest you have a private word with Mrs. Molly Diamond. It's just possible by now she may have noticed that her husband can't keep his hands off Aladdin's magic lamp. Now then, Mr. Rumpole, you mustn't tell me how to do my job. <laughs> I'm only trying to serve the interests of justice. You mean the interests of your client? Sometimes. They're one and the same thing. I didn't admit that wasn't very often. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. As it happened, the truth emerged without Detective Inspector Grimble having to do too much work. Harry Sparks had, in fact, fallen victim to a tip-tilted nose and memorable thighs. He'd left home and moved into Aladdin's Kensal Rise flat. Molly, taking a terrible revenge, blew his alibi wide open and confessed to the police what she had done that night at the Hippodrome. She had watched many rehearsals and knew every word, every gag, every nudge, wink and shrill complaint of the dame's part. Then she had stepped in and played it to perfection to give her husband an alibi while he went back to his old job in Acton. It all went perfectly even though Uncle Abanaza, when dancing with the temporary dame, had felt an unexpected softness. I had known instinctively that something was very wrong. It had, however, taken some time for me to realise what I'd really seen that night at the Golders Green Hippodrome. It was nothing less than an outrage to a great British tradition. Widow Twanky was a woman. That didn't matter a jot to Dennis Timpson, who was released from custody. Peanuts Malloy had perverting the course of justice added to the charges against him. And did soapy Sam Ballard ever thank me for taking his niece and nephew to the pantomime that year? Oh, yes, he did. Oh, no, he didn't. We three kings of Orient are Bearing gifts we traverse afar Field and fountain, moor and mountain Following yonder star in Rumpole and the New Year's Resolutions by John Mortimer, Horace Rumpole was played by Julian Ryan Tutt, and his wife Hilda was Jasmine Hyde. Claude Erskine Brown was played by Nigel Anthony, Fred Timpson, Stephen Critchlow, 
and Eric Streeter was Ewan Bailey. Other parts were played by members of the company. Rumpole and the New Year's Resolutions was adapted by Richard Stoneman, directed by Marilyn Imrie, and is a Catherine Bailey production for BBC Radio 4. Beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light.